Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, high above the Rideau River at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. On Friday, April the 5th, the Communications Security Establishment announced that it would be providing an update to its assessments of cyber threats to Canada's democratic process on Monday, April the 8th. This is an update to the CSE's groundbreaking 2017 report. But it also has come in the wake of concerns over foreign interference in elections in the West generally, as well as discussions of far-right extremist content online after the Christchurch shootings. In a timely coincidence, I had the opportunity to speak to an expert in hybrid and information warfare in mid-March. James Pammett, an associate professor and head of the Department of Strategic Communications at Lund University, is a senior advisor to the Hybrid Center of Excellence in Helsinki, Finland. James leads a small research team that provides training, scenario exercises, process and policy support to governments of the 20 hybrid Center of Excellence member states, as well as international organizations, to help protect them from electoral interference, disinformation and hybrid influence techniques. During our conversation, we had the opportunity to speak about what hybrid warfare is, why it is so hard to counter, but what states might be able to do about it, even if it is complex. And just before we begin, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the staff of the UK High Commission here in Ottawa for making this timely conversation possible. And now, a short brief on information and hybrid warfare. So James, thank you so much for joining us today. I thought we might start off by just talking about what a hybrid threat is, since we hear about them all the time, but it's never really explained. So hybrid threats are those activities that that countries or non-state actors do um, against somebody else um, to achieve some kind of goal. And the activities that usually don't meet the threshold of war. Um, so they're often very difficult to detect. Um, and if you do detect them, they're often difficult to, to respond to. Right. So could you give an example? I mean, we often think about you know Russian bots all over the Internet, but it, it's much more broad than that. So it's a range of activities. We usually think of it as a spectrum. And at one end, you have harder activities um, that can involve espionage, um, blockades. Um, and then it moves towards a softer end where, where information warfare can become part of it. Um, policy issues such as energy policy can become part of it. It's essentially using any lever that's at your disposal um, to, to help achieve the broader policy goals that you have. Right. So when we hear, so it's not just um, again Russian bots. It's also the you know the strategic use of energy resources, for example. Um, you know, it could be also the idea that you have certain diplomatic uh, pressures or financial pressures or things like this. Yeah, things like everything from blackmail, um, bugging people, honey traps, all the way through to to bots and um, fake accounts um, on social media. So it's, it's really a range of activities and it's, it's actually quite difficult to, to put everything under the same umbrella simply because those activities are so different. So, I mean, it, that kind of raises an interesting question because like all of those things have existed for some time. But what is it about it now that's actually kind of created this sense of, of panic? Is it just that Russia has become good at it or is it because, um, you know, we're seeing the, it being used in new ways? I think what we're seeing is it's a combination of factors. One of them is is the loss of knowledge since the end of the Cold War. Um, and a generation has grown up not really being aware of some of the fundamental principles of antagonistic international relations. 
but we're seeing some of these issues return. So issues like Crimea, we're very good at focusing the mind on those kind of issues and reminding us um, of some of the basics of international relations. Um, unfortunately, in combination with that, we're seeing digital media in particular amplifying some of these techniques um, and adding a whole new layer of activities that, that we're in many respects unprepared for. So that being said, what is it that states are trying to do now like to, to deal with this? And, and why have we struggled so much in our response? You, you've mentioned the fact that it is, you know, there's knowledge that have been forgotten, but, you know, it seems like attempts to kind of call this behavior out have failed. We just don't seem to be able to counter it in any effective way. I think there are some interesting efforts to counter it, but part of the problem of hybrid, um, this, this umbrella term of hybrid techniques is that they often just fall under any thresholds that would cause a major retaliation. We used to call this in the Cold War salami tactics. Is that this, is that an apt description? Yeah, yeah I think so. It's similar. Yeah. Okay. So, um, in other words, they know how to kind of manipulate the system so that, um, it's, or is a boiling frog a better we're just going to have boiling frogs and sliced salami. It's not going to be a very tasty meal. Sliced frogs? Sliced frogs. <laughs> but the, the fact is that you have these um, kind of all these analogies where you have this idea that, you know, you can walk up and we see them walking up, but we just don't seem to be able to respond in time. I think part of it is a, um, a gambler's mentality. Um, so a lot of these hybrid techniques, particularly on the information side, involve um, testing, testing, testing. A bit like playing poker. You know, you, you get your hand, you have a look, and you just fold if you don't think it's the right hand. So you test, test, test. When something comes up that you think's a winner, you go all in and you go big. So we see um, some of these actors becoming really adept at getting their messages right, getting their tactics right, going big, and then gambling on the response of the international community. So in examples like Crimea, Crimea, um, they gamble on the fact that the international community won't respond with force because of the nature of the um, the the invasion. Right, because Crimea is not important enough that you're not going to trigger a war with Russia over us. Right, and in in the case of the Salisbury poisoning, for example, in the UK, um, they gambled on the idea that the UK is isolated because of Brexit and that it can't gather its th its friends together and, and give a concerted response. You know, I'm just disappointed because I really thought those guys were just into cathedrals. Yeah, the, um, the spire is 123 metres high. It's, it's quite a sight. <laughs> Sounds great. But that actually raises another really interesting question, which is uh, this idea of, you know, you're trying a whole bunch of different things and then you're trying to figure out what works. So, I mean, like, is this, should we be thinking of these tactics as kind of scattershot or should we be thinking them as particularly narrow? And the reason I ask that is that, you know, we've seen in the indictments that have come out in the United States that actually... You know, this wasn't just a bunch of people on the Internet, even though that's, I think, somehow how we, we think of this. But it was actually um, people who were sent to the United States to learn about the culture, learn about the sensitive issues and then try to target those. So, like, again, so how how targeted are these or is it is it that kind of gamble? I think it really depends on the antagonist that we're talking about in a particular situation. Um, in some cases, it seems as though years of planning have gone into it with testing of systems, um, finding vulnerabilities and exploits and then just keeping them for the right moment um, and then acting in a coordinated way to, to, to achieve some kind of goal. In other cases, it sometimes feels very opportunistic as though there isn't really a plan but 
um, if you knock on enough doors and some of them open, then then why not then go all in and, and see what happens? So the, the behavior or the behaviors that are involved in hybrid attacks can seem quite random and difficult to predict, and that's part of their charm. Right. And it's, it's always been my understanding with these kinds of techniques as well, at least on the information side. And, you know, sometimes you see a conflation between information warfare and hybrid warfare, but information is really just one part of it, if that's my understanding. But on these information warfare or information uh, campaigns that they're picking up narratives that already exist and they're trying to amplify them. This, they're not trying to insert in, insert narratives because it's far more successful to pick on something that can then be exploited rather than to pick up um, or, or try to develop an entirely new narrative. I think if you look at the kind of public diplomacy work that many Western countries were doing in authoritarian countries over the last 15 years or so, um, some of the techniques, such as working through NGOs, boosting local influencers, um, facilitating intercultural dialogue in support of democracy, those kinds of techniques were seen as um, illegitimate and offensive and essentially as hybrid techniques against authoritarian governments in those countries. Right. So, uh, like, so someone like Putin is going to listen to this and say, well, you've been doing this to right. me for years. And what we're seeing used back against us is similar techniques um, together with espionage and, and other uh, levers of, of, of statecraft um, essentially exploiting vulnerabilities that are part and parcel of democracy just because that's the way democracy works. We have to have free and open debate. That means someone can go in, use identity politics, for example, as a stepping stone to, to build um, a community around it and then use that to polarise against other groups and increase tensions. So they're, they're spotting vulnerabilities that we have in our society and then exploiting them um, using a lot of the techniques that come from public affairs, public relations, lobbying, public diplomacy, et cetera, et cetera. So that raises another really interesting question about vulnerabilities. What is it that makes Western states vulnerable to this? It's actually our strengths. Um, the fact that we have free and open debate about pretty much anything. Um, that means that if you want to exploit these debates, um, it's relatively easy to do so. So particularly on digital media where it's not clear who's speaking and you can hide behind um, a fake account, pretend to be somebody else, it's actually quite easy um, to set up an account. It's cheap. Um, it's, it's, um, the barriers to it are actually quite low. You can set up an account, draw people to you based on, on a shared interest in a certain political topic. But what you can then also do is, is do this in several other areas um, I think there was there was something like 40 cases in the American election, um, the 2016 presidential election of um, the Internet Research Agency running multiple closed Facebook groups for specific identity politics based issues. You run these, you draw people to them, and then you start pushing them against each other. Right. And we saw this famously. I mean, this case is always brought up, the one where they actually were able to get people to protest against each exactly. other in real lives. Yeah. So you're here and you're now a special advisor to the European Center of Excellence for Countering Hybrid Threats, which is sometimes called the Hybrid COE. Could you explain a little bit about the center and then maybe we can talk a little bit about your work? The Hybrid COE is a joint NATO-EU um, body um, that offers support. Sometimes they refer to themselves as marriage counsellors um, just to... Um, 
help work on that relationship. And a lot of what we do is is going out, um, offering training, um, other kinds of materials to support um, the efforts of, of our members. Right. And so you go out and you offer training to people in government with regards to the the nature of the threat and some strategies for coping. How many can you say how many states you have uh, been speaking with? Um, over the last um, year or so, we've we've probably spoken to representatives from the entire membership. I think it's around 20 countries who are members at the moment. Wow. So there's a lot um, of interest. Um, but some of them, some of them, we convene people on, on similar topics and they come from all of the member states. Um, on some occasions, we travel out to a specific member state and bring together different parts of government and, and work through some of the issues that they're facing with them. You know, it's funny, you described yourself as a marriage counsellor. Is that because there was a real problem with dealing with NATO and the EU on these issues? I think the, 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 the issue is is not necessarily between the EU and NATO, but it, but even within governments, there are silos that exist for very good reasons between security, policy and communications parts, for example. But in these hybrid areas where they are deliberately ambiguous and they do draw on lots of different areas, um, some work needed to be done to help um, bring people together, convene them, and then work through some of the issues together. So we see that as one of the advantages that we have, that uh, the fact that we have um, different researchers and experts with different backgrounds who can help um, s- help show the value in bringing um, different parts of government together. Right. And that's that's a really interesting point, because one of the things we're seeing here in Canada is the fact that, you know, our intelligence services are now having to work with Elections Canada, which is kind of mind blowing. Like you, you would have thought these are definitely two things you want to keep as far apart as possible. But now they're de- they definitely have to be partners to do this. Um are you so? Are you kind of coaching them on how to bring these different parties together? Um, well, we actually convene them together when we have our, our meetings um, and offer a, a safe space to have some of these conversations. Um, I think Canada is is a country where where many of these conversations happen anyway. Um, but what we also support with is processes, routines, best practice from other countries. Um, and, and also run exercises where we can test some ideas and give them that opportunity to really um, ask the questions, uh, make mistakes if necessary, um, but with a really um, with a real focus on not just admiring the problem, but actually trying to find solutions that, that can be implemented tomorrow. And, like, I mean, obviously you can't go into detail because these are highly confidential conversations, but what are the problems generally that you find that when these different actors come together? There are there are a lot of different problems. You know, in general terms, silos in government exist for good reason. Um, but in cases like elections, when there's a risk of hybrid threats, we need to overcome some of these silos, perhaps just for a specific period of time. Um, but we need to develop ways of working um, across some of these um, different fields. Um, one of the particular things that, that I spend a lot of time thinking about is the role of communications in relation to policy and intelligence, um, where we see that in certain situations, policy and intelligence will work together, and then they tend to want to say to the communicators, now now please communicate this. Um, but one of the things that we like to do is try to bring strategic communicators into the debate and get them around the table and help them have a 
an informed dialogue um, where everyone can contribute to the decision making. That's a, that's fascinating because you hear so much about the intelligence policy nexus and the challenge is just getting policy and intelligence folks to understand each other. But you're actually saying it's vital to get that third component in, which is strategic communications. So some of the processes we've developed to support this um, actually involve um, using common language, common terms to, to help these different groups get together and actually speak in, in similar terms about the same things. Um, everyone perhaps sees a different part of the puzzle um, and perhaps they can't reveal everything that they're seeing, but there are, there are some forms of language, um, certain processes that can be shared that can help um, bring everyone more or less to be talking about the same things. So going forward, I mean, what are the big challenges we've heard about? You know, you often hear about deep fakes, the fact that artificial intelligence is going to be manipulating things in real time. Um, you know, there's concerns about like, you know, how long will it take people to develop critical thinking skills <laughs> when it comes to social media and things like this? The problem that people just like material that reinforces what they want to believe. So where where do we think this is going? I think you point to a, a number of really big challenges. The, the big one is um, literacy, digital literacy, um, source criticism, um, really the, some of the basics of um, online engagement that we, we seem to have not really developed, you know, not just in, in individual countries, but, but as, a, you know, as a Western civilization, in essence, we haven't really developed these skills yet. And this is something that's going to take perhaps decades to really um, to really develop. So you have this, this very long-term set of skills that we need to work on, the schools need to get involved, we need educators to, to start um, developing programs for understanding this information and, and digital literacy and so on. Um, then you have the very short-term stuff, the kind of stuff that, that I work on, which is what can we do now to support governments and to support the public so that they can participate in democracy without having to be exposed to disinformation and to help them make their own mind up and empower them to, to understand um, the quality of information that they're exposed to. So these, these challenges are, are huge um, and they're not going to go away. What I think is probably going to happen over the next couple of years is as Western countries raise the threshold and raise the cost of these kinds of activities in their, on their in their backyards, that the hybrid um, techniques will, will be used in markets where it's easier and cheaper and more effective to do so. So particularly developing countries um, that have large, powerful neighbours around them. So what we may find is Western interests being undermined in that way rather than in our own backyards. And that's again, takes us back to a to a scenario that's not dissimilar from the Cold War. Right, where larger states are able to exert their influence over their, their near neighbours. So it may be the case that this debate on hybrid warfare you know, and, and information warfare develops into a discussion of international development and um, the role of the West in developing countries and supporting um, developing countries against hostile actors. So one of the hot button issues we've seen here in the last two weeks is really this idea that are social media companies doing enough? Are they being responsible? Why are they allowing content such as the New Zealand shooters video or even some extremist content to stay online? We saw the social media companies do a relatively good job 
with regards to taking down material from the Islamic State. But we seem to be having trouble with either, you know, these kind of hot button issues that, you know, foreign adversaries seem to be very good at exploiting. And on the second hand, um, just extremist content generally that happens to not be from the Islamic State. The platforms are facing similar problems to to governments in that a lot of this hybrid stuff falls under thresholds. Um, When it comes to content from the Islamic State or other um, internet harms um, that we see, you can develop algorithms, you can develop um, databases of that kind of content so that it's automatically found and removed. Um, It's also easier to build coalitions against um, an actor like Islamic State because we know they're the bad guys and, and there's no controversy around that. When it comes to non-state actors or states um, like, for example, Russia, where, where countries have quite different relationships to them, it's very difficult to build consensus around how to respond. Um, and it's also equally difficult for the, for the social media platforms to, to find this content and you know, automate the, the takedown of this kind of stuff. So I think they're they're very much reliant on um, people finding this stuff and flagging it for them. And they're certainly improving and getting better at it. But one of the figures I heard around the um, the Wellington shooting was that they, they their algorithms picked up about 80% of the, the videos that were uploaded. The problem was that 300,000 videos were doctored in such ways as to avoid the algorithmic um, detection. Which means when you have an antagonist who, who really wants to achieve something, they're using um, all of the tools at their disposal to essentially avoid detection. It's really hard for anybody to, to catch this stuff. So yes, there's a lot of pressure on the social media platforms to do better. But I think we also have to appreciate that this is an antagonist who can take on lots of different forms. Um, it's not as easy or as straightforward as dealing with something like Islamic State, and um, the thresholds are often really difficult to to um, act upon. Right, I, I get that, and I see how the social media companies are in this position. It just it, it does strike me as as strange that you know you can't uh, if there is that political will you can actually get rid of this content. But what I take from what you just said is that internationally there isn't that political will to address some of this uh, activity. So I think it's quite a complicated problem. Even within the EU, you see um, the awareness of this issue greatly differ between member states. Um, And these are essentially 28 or 27, possibly by the time this is broadcast, um, different countries who, who perceive this issue completely differently. So you may have seven or eight who really understand it and really want to do things about it, and then you may have several others who just don't see a problem. Um, so this this is part of the the problem um, more generally. To have a, a to build co- consensus and to have a real sense of common purpose, um, you need everybody on board. Um, country level and among the big corporations who are involved in this and actually build some kind of common understanding of the problem and common um, pathways to a common solution. And and we're we're nowhere near that stage yet. Well, we always like to end the show on a very positive note. So I think we'll end it there. Um, James, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and wish you best of luck in dealing with some of these very complex issues. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.